Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the uh, 52nd episode of Hitler's Table Talk. I am Carolyn Yeager. It is March 26, 2015, and... I'm Ray Goodwin. And how was your week? It was good. It was good. Yeah, yeah you did some traveling, didn't you? Yes, I did. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed my time and... Uh, a little bit of variation of weather. We, uh, I was surprised this morning when I woke up to rain hitting my air conditioning unit outside uh, my window, and I thought, what is this? I didn't expect it. And then the wind was out of the north, and a shower came through here. And But then the sunshine came, and it was a really nice day, a little bit uh, cooler than we had been having, but uh, still very nice. Well, that's what I like. I like it that it got it cooled down today. Uh, boy, yesterday and the day before were too hot for me. When it, when we have those days, you know, early in the spring, when you're not, uh, you know, used to it yet, it's like, wow, I'm all wiped out by this. And now I've got these trees, these horrible Texas oak trees. I used to think Texas oaks were such wonderful things, but I've learned better now. They're dropping all their stuff now. They're in the, probably the worst stage that they get into. So it's got me all uh, my allergies, you know, as it functions as an allergen. So it's got me all uh, feeling goopy and dull. And uh, and I'm sorry about that because tonight's program is, to my mind, and I'd already told you this, we may be the best that we've had all along. I just think mm-hmm. it's so very interesting and tells us so much about Hitler, subjects that I'm particularly interested in and uh and so i was wanting to do a real bang up job here but i feel like i almost uh wish it was would come next week or something but another thing has been the plane crash has got me uh all uh you know caught up in that and uh finding it was you we were kind of kind of expecting something strange for the reason that it happened but boy it's really strange and and I'm I'm rather upset about that too, and I've been focused on it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, plane crash in Germany. Right. You know, you know what I'm talking about. I hope. Yes, it's it's been in the news. Uh, I tell you what, uh, Carolyn, you are. Uh, I can't. I can barely hear you. You're not near as clear and loud as you normally are. It's it's like, and I'm not saying this is what it is, but it's like you're about three feet away from your mic. Because oh, I'm set the same as it always has been. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, for some reason or other, through my phone here, I'm I'm uh, it's a little bit weak. Okay. This would be lesson fifty-two, as I call it, March twenty-sixth uh, today, twenty fifteen, twenty-ninth of August, nineteen forty-two, in the evening. Difficulties of the maintenance of organized society. My 20 Protestant bishops. Do we keep Belgium, France, and Norway? Universal suffrage signed the death warrant of the Austrian Empire. War with the partisans. We must adopt the arrogance of Britain. Education and stuffed heads. The safety valve of military service. Once we were a people of energy. A fitting job for a woman. There never was a party more badly led than the Social Democratic Party, and yet the masses flocked to join and support it. 
this, it might be argued, was because they had no alternative choice, but that's not true. Man is not endowed by nature with the herd instinct, and it is only by the most rigorous methods that he can be induced to join the herd. He has the same urge as the dog, the rabbit, and the hare to couple up with one another being as a separate entity. The social state, as such, can be maintained only by a rule of iron. Take away the laws, and the fabric falls immediately to pieces. The easiest people to conquer are those endowed with the most versatility. The Swabians, for years on end, the only result of my allies in Augsburg was ignominious failure. Excuse me, but, Ray. Ray? Ray? Yeah. Isn't that rally? Yeah. Yeah, you said allies. Excuse me? You're not hearing oh, me at all. Oh, okay, aren't yeah. You? Yeah. For years on end, the only result of my rallies in Augsburg was ignominious failure. But once I had won them over, my difficulties were gone for good. In other districts, I had an immediate initial success, only to find that a week later I had to begin all over again. I had to fight desperately to gain power. But today there are only a few insignificant groups of intellectuals who remain obdurately against me. They are people bereft of logic, and their opinion is of no importance. Generally speaking, the people never question an established regime. They are content to accept things as they are. History affords three examples where those who have seized power have succeeded in winning over the people. The Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, and the British Empire. In India... The British started by dividing the country. One portion consisted of crown colonies. The other was made up of independent princely states whose rulers became the vassals of the British crown. In the eastern territories, our policy should be to encourage the survival of as many religious sects and communities as possible. If anyone should try to form them into one corporate entity... I shall have plenty to say to him. I should like each petty little district to have its own pope. Once only in my life have I been stupid enough to try to unite some 20 different sects under one head. And God, to whom be thanks, endowed my 20 Protestant bishops with such stupidity that I was saved from my own folly. If I had succeeded, I should now have two popes on my back and two blackmailers. I can easily deal with the 17 Protestant bishops who still exist, but it is only because I have the absolute power that I can do it. In this respect, the Holy Roman Empire had no success, and yet it survived as a power in the eyes of the world long after it had ceased, in fact, to ex exercise any power at all. Hey, can we a principle. Which, minute, Ray? Ray? Sure. Are you hearing me okay? Yeah. Not too, not too well, huh? I, I wanted it's, to it's, ask. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I wanted to ask some listeners if uh, because I've got my carolynjaeger.net uh, email account open, and I wanted to ask some listeners if if they could comment on uh, whether they can hear me the same as usual or if they're not hearing me very well. So um, yeah, I'm going to check over there. 
in a little bit. I, I know there's some listeners who are real good about responding, so I hope... It's a good idea. Um, yeah, because I just don't know what what the problem would be. Since I'm on Skype, um, well, I, I thought we could talk about this little section just a little bit. But he is saying something here that uh, goes against what most people say, Ray, and what we mostly take for as a truism. He says man is not endowed by nature with the herd instinct. Aren't we always saying that we all have the herd instinct and this is something that's used against us and so on? And yet he he kind of likes the herd instinct. <laughs> he said it makes it hard to, to run a state because uh, people, you know, you have to have, if you don't have the laws there, Nobody will follow, will really follow along. They'll all go back to uh, what they're doing. And, and he's saying that the uh, human beings have the same urge to couple, couple up with one other being, uh, like a couple, you know, a couple, and uh, do their own thing. Uh, what do you think of that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's very natural for, uh, individuals to think of look for a partner and then uh, combine with that partner for a relationship and that's the primary thing in your life and and that instinct comes before thinking of your people or your tribe as your actual family I mean that instinct may be there or that feeling may be there but it is the individual relationship with another individual that you have chosen to be your partner as the primary uh, instinct in your life. And I think that's what he means when he says man is not endowed by nature with the herd instinct. Uh, maybe not by yeah. nature, but he, com- he comes to realize that, yes, it's definitely a part of me. Yeah, I mean, uh, do we think that he is right or is he, is he wrong? I think, I think in this particular evening, August 29th, he's really in top form. And he even goes a little too far at times where he's a little bit rash, I think, uh, where he, uh, he, you know, that happens sometimes when you're really feeling good and you really feel like saying things and uh, sometimes you go to a little bit of an extreme. Not much, but I'm going to point out a couple of things. It also means that he's saying a lot of things in a really excellent way and not holding back. Uh, We're going to see some of that. Now, I think, uh, yeah, what he's saying is that people will go into their family like the tribal thing, maybe. You know, end yes. up like the tribal thing instead of the state, which is he's always been the big uh, supporter and promoter of uh, the state. And unifying. Well, unifying is that's, know, the, the people into a larger... That's industry. right. I, I thought, uh, Carolyn, one of the most fascinating sentences of this section that we've covered so far is when he says the easiest people to conquer are those endowed with the most versatility. One would think it would be the other way around, but then you realize what he's talking about is uh, the people that he is in uh, combat with uh, and the subjects and whatever, and as long as they're more diverse and and have uh, more difference of uh, maybe uh, religious feelings or racial feelings or tribal feelings, they are the easiest to conquer, and that's that stands to reason uh, when you apply it in that manner. And so that's why he said he would encourage 
all of these little units, wherever uh, the German military was successful and they had conquered territory, all of those units within that territory, he would encourage them to, hey, have your own uh, your own popes and, and do what you want to do. And the first time someone starts trying to organize them and say, hey, let's form a unity here, he said, I'm going to have a lot to say to that guy. And that makes sense. And taken in that light, I think, I, I think that's what he's uh, referring to. Yeah, what you said, I agree with that. And he goes into that that uh, in the British don't don't try to get the people to think alike, and they don't try to to get the people to. Uh, well, he says if you have a different religion, that's good, and anything right. like that is good to keep people divided, really. And we know that the whole thing uh, di- divide and conquer. That's basically what he's saying here. Is uh, sure he wants to conquer people. That he wa- he would encourage anything that divides them into various factions, groups, and you know mostly you could call it factions. So, uh, and what's so interesting here is that he's talking about these Protestant bishops, and he says, uh, if I had succeeded, I should now have two. He was saved. He was saved from his own folly in trying to uh, join these Protestant bishops together. And he's talking about the German Christian Church from 1935 or so, when he was backing that proposal and that plan. And so many people, Ray, who are fans of National Socialism and the Third Reich and are Christian and point to that idea of this German Christian Church and and Hitler's uh, helping to, wanting to get that going and his, therefore, his interest in Christianity, uh, but he is now saying, which he did, he did want to do that then, but now he's saying uh, that that would have, uh, once in my life, once in my life have I been stupid enough to try to to try to unite some 20 different sects under one head, and uh, he's saying that all these bishops thought differently, and that uh, thanks, he's thankful that he failed at it. Right. So I found that really interesting. I mean, that stood out to me right away. I'm not trying to. I I like the idea of the German Christian Church myself, and I, when I read about it and see these symbols they had for it and so on, I think, oh, that's nice, you know. But you know, he's he's uh, changed his mind about some things, and that, that I'm sure that that's what he's saying right here. Okay. I'm yeah. Well. The only other thing I wanted to add about that was uh, kind of goes back to what we were first talking about, and that's uh, how you keep a con- conquered territory under control. And he uses, uh, of course, he says in India, the British started by dividing the country. One portion of that country consisted of crown colonies, and that means colonies that are uh, basically ruled by the British lord and master. Uh, and uh, setting up uh, institutions and whatever, but the other was made up of independent princely states where the uh, Indian princes and all were allowed their own rule and everything, and, and, and the British were kind of a secondary authority there. And uh, that was smart, the, the very smart. The vassals of the British. It wasn't yes, the right. Now. Those rulers had to answer to the British, yeah, but right. to their people, they seemed to be the ones in command. And and uh, the actual rulers, because up they were the ones up front uh, and out among the populace. It wasn't the British 
So, uh, you know, that was a pretty smart uh, thing to do, and, and that's why I said we've got to, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of imitate the British and, and uh, their example. Well, see, he wants his own people to be united. but Yes, uh, sure. Who he wants to have some have them that's your main point uh, Carolyn that's the exact point that he's driving at is, is, is yeah. that they, uh, you know it's good to keep them divided uh which that's right make sense, but it's just the fact that sure saying, okay okay <clears throat> moving on a principle which must never be forgotten is that a confederation of states can be maintained only by a continuation of the methods used to conquer them and bring them into confederation. Fundamentally speaking, Belgium, France, and Norway are not our natural enemies. I have no desire to incorporate all Frenchmen in the Reich. Those who dwell on our borders and with whom we have contact are, uh, were all Germans 400 years ago. I admit, if I were to follow the example of the old Germany and ignore completely their origins and environment, then I should have to impose on them the will of the state without mercy or consideration. But the real question one must ask oneself is, can we absorb them with an advantage? Do they, by blood, belong to our own race? And then one must act in accordance with the answer one gives oneself. There is perhaps a fourth example, the Austrian Empire. What a mosaic, what an astonishing conglomeration it contained, and yet it held together. In a case like this, however, those in power signed their own death warrant when they introduced universal suffrage. Up to that moment, the German minority had held the power so securely in their own hands that no one has the right to say that minority government is a monopoly of the British genius. Then, however, there arose a general feeling that this state, in reality a German state, should not be allowed to continue for fear that it might lead to complete German domination and eventually to the foundation of a single pan-Germanic empire. The Hungarians, too, were most uneasy. Then came 1848. The Hungarians rebelled, but the rebellion was crushed with, most unfortunately, Russian assistance. Yet in spite of this, mention of the monarchy in Hungary arouses the deepest emotions to this very day, for the Hungarians still consider themselves to be the last survivors of the glorious epoch of imperial grandeur. With our 85 million Germans... <coughs> We have in the Reich itself a major part of the population of the Germanic races. No other nation possesses so strong a proportion of those, these elements. <coughs> Excuse me. It would then be a sorry business if, with such strength at our disposal, we fail to bring law and order to ancient Europe. We may have a hundred years of struggle before us. If so, all the better. It'll prevent us from going to sleep. People sometimes say to me, be careful. You'll have 20 years of guerrilla warfare on your hands. I am delighted at the prospect. With a number of small armies, we can continue to dominate a large number of peoples. In the future, our divisions will not be in dull garrison towns like Lechfeld and Hammerberg but will be sent to the Caucasus, 
Our lads have always shouted with joy at the prospect of service abroad, and I shall see to it that in the future they range the four corners of the world. Germany will remain in a state of perpetual alertness. We will adopt the British attitude of arrogance. In the time of the old German emperors, let it not be forgotten the kings of England were of little more account than the king of Denmark today. In the first war, we found, on going through the paybooks of prisoners of war, that many of them had served in the South African War. They had been all over the world, and for them, the fatherland was their regiment. With men like that, nothing was Im- is impossible. For the future, it will, I think, be essential to introduce a three-year period of military service. Only by doing, <clears throat> by so doing, can we ensure efficiency in the handling of new technical weapons. A three-year period would be a great advantage <clears throat> to those who later propose to adopt a learned profession, for it will give them ample time to forget all the muck that was jammed into their heads at school. They will have time to discard everything which will not be of future use to them, and that in itself is most valuable. Everybody, for example, learns two or three foreign languages, which is a complete waste of time. The little one learns is not of the slightest use when one goes abroad. Everybody, Ray, Ray, I agree. Ray, Ray. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think we should have stopped at the beginning of this paragraph. And okay. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm checking my my email again. Yeah, here it comes. You are hard to hear, Carolyn. Raymond says, and S. J. Lewis says it's very low, Carolyn. Ray sounds very good. Well, I'm gonna. I don't know if turning up my mic is gonna do anything. What does this do for you, Ray? It's still of the same level. Yeah, I don't think it's my mic. It's something else. That's really too bad. See, everything's going wrong with this show. Let me see. There's another. There was another one here. Maybe he says so. Hurt. Oh, he's talking about the herd instinct. Uh, well, I'll just read with this what this uh, Raymond says about the herd instinct since I'm at it. Today, because of modern anthropologic and social research, he would say that white European man is not endowed by nature with the herd instinct. There are other non-white races such as Jews and black Africans and their descendants, mixed and pure, who are endowed with the herd, tribal instinct. Well, what do you think of that? Well, you know, I mean, it's an interesting line of thought. I think what he was saying, he meant uh, white European man. I mean... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I don't know what to do about, except to talk real loud. If I talk real well, loud, I'm trying to teach myself not to talk loud. Do I sound louder <laughs> when I do that? Do I well, sound loud or not? I mean, right now you sound uh, audible to me. Uh it's not that it's fuzzed or unclear, Carolyn. It's just that it's low volume, and I have to really kind of concentrate on this end to hear some of the things that you say. I'm picking them up, but like I say, it's of a lower volume. It's Yeah, well, here I am. Uh, when he talked about the Confederation of States, 
you can only maintain something like that with by continuing the methods you used to conquer them and bring them into a confederation. That well, made me think of the Russian Federation. Uh, uh, Germany was a confederation of states, and uh, so that's what he's talking about. But any time you have a confederation or a federation, you have to continue working to keep them together, to, uh, you know, to keep them from separating and splitting apart. But when he said, but the real question one must ask oneself is, can we absorb them with advantage? Do they by blood belong to our own race? And then one must act in accordance with the answer one gives oneself. Um, you know, I thought that's a great quote uh, from him because he's, he's talking about people who live around the right. He's talking about people in Belgium, France, Norway, etc., saying they're not our enemies, but they all were Germans at one time, he likes to think, basically. But he's saying now, though, that do they fit into do they fit into the Reich? And we have to ask the question: Can they be absorbed to our advantage? Do they, by blood, belong to our own race? And so here he's focusing on the blood as being important, and he's talking about race again, using the word as uh, not as it's used officially by people, but as he uses it, like close to being a nationality or your you know your German race your French race and your Norwegian race British race whatever and using it in that way and, and talking about are all these people of the Germanic race and can we all fit together can we all you know come together as being belonging together or that question has to be asked which again to just to me emphasizes how how particular he was and how much attention he paid to race and to who becomes a German and who doesn't become a German. He was not in the least open to anybody who wanted to become a German becoming one. And uh, that's the place where I like to point out that ideas like VKC has, Veronica Clark has, are just uh, don't are not the kind of ideas that Hitler has whatsoever, but, and she's got a lot of people saying, well, I think Hitler was real easygoing about this, and he didn't, he even didn't have a problem with Negroes uh, joining the German gene pool, things like that, just absolute nonsense, you know, and right. so I like to point out when he is saying things that prove that he didn't think that. And the other thing sure. Well, you're real close in the text to something that I was going to comment on uh, when he talks about the Austrian Empire, and he says, what a mosaic, an astonishing conglomeration. And he says uh, those in power sign their own death warrant when they introduce universal suffrage. And, uh, you know, I'm assuming that means... uh, Everybody gets to decide who's going to be the leaders uh, of this country and whatever, rather than keep this thing. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's like a national movement. It's not like a state or a provincial movement. And uh, he says those that who are really keep, keeping that conglomeration together as a unit are in danger if they allow that. Well, he's. I I I don't know. I didn't quite follow that, but I think uh, well, the way I see this is that. He, you know how he criticized the Austrian Empire as being yeah. uh, 
mixture of Germans and Slavs and uh, some others, Hungarians too, and a lot of a lot of things. Um, and uh, he he disapproved of that, and I think that's what he means about universal suffrage. When they when they allowed everybody to vote, he's not talking about between women and men. He's talking about between these different um, what he would call races. You know, he would call them races. Uh, that 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 was a mistake, and that was also took place in the British Empire. Too great of an extent, according to him. I don't know exactly what part of the what part of the British Empire he has in mind. He may be thinking about, I don't know, but is that the way you took it? Well, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, he he uh, he keeps using the British uh, success as his example, and uh, there was one thing here. What are you saying here? Is that that the, the Austrian Empire was this great uh, combination of different peoples, and it held together because uh, the Germans were running it. But when the when they went to uh, universal suffrage and so on, then that was the end of the greatness of that. Right. So again, he's very pro-German. He's just always so pro-German oh, sure. or sure. Germanic. You know, he'll include all Germanic peoples. And then, well, I thought somewhere he talked about pan-Slavism, but that might be somebody else from in another thing that I was reading. But well, no, it was uh, it was in there. Uh, well, um, uh, pan-Germanic empire was mentioned in yeah. the in yeah, our text here. But somewhere I was thinking of something else about pan-Slavism. Uh, okay. Uh, but he, he, I, he also said we have in the Reich itself a major part of the population of the Germanic races. So that's that's where he, you notice that um, he uses the plural form there. So he's using races here more clearly than anywhere else. It's not according to the standard meaning that we have for race. That's right. He uses, he uses the that's, word race. That's right. The, the S at the end of that word makes all the difference in the world. Right, and so uh, he he calls it the Germanic races. I don't know exactly mm-hmm. what he has in mind there, but in any in any event, he's always very sensitive and concerned about race. Sure, and, Nordics, Teutons, yeah, right. Celtics, whatever. Right, right. That's it. Yeah, and uh, and then he uh, he's getting so expansive. Here's what I'd like to say about this. I, I hope people can hear me. This is a this is a problem here. Um, he's also saying that he's getting into. Here's how I see this. He hoped that the war would be over soon, quickly. You know, sure. He hoped to get it over very quickly. Now he sees it's not looking like it's going to be over quickly, or it might not be over quickly. So he's now right. he's, he's adjusting himself to. Uh, having a long stretch of being at war and then seeing that as good, and, you know, I've seen that in a positive light. Well, well, we'll always be alert. Of course, he's also saying that once we take over all this territory, we'll have to be very alert all the time with uh, with maintaining it because he did bring up here in the beginning guerrilla warfare. Uh, you'll, you can always have people yes. fighting against from these places. And he's saying, well... Good. That'll keep us uh, strong and and alert, and we won't, uh, you know, we'll we'll be able to handle it. That's what he's saying. I should cross out that first part I said. 
Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and he makes that point when he says, uh, with a small, uh, with a number of small armies, we can continue to dominate a large number of peoples. And then he's, and then he's talking about uh, military service, and he wants to introduce three-year military service. So he's seeing Germany more and more as a, uh, by necessity now, for what they're, yes. what they're going for now, by necessity as a very militarily oriented nation and how they're going to you know keep that going and keep keep uh, what what they need keep all the uh, uh troops and so on that they need and this is why then he gets into education because he thinks that yeah. he doesn't want the youth to be educated just to be scholars and and so on but he wants them to be educated to be uh, soldiers really so That's true. That. This is all pretty controversial and changes a lot of the ideas that some people have had for a long time and just stick with about about Hitler and what National Socialism was. And, and it, it's not that it's not that, but uh, this war changed things and the fact that they didn't, you know, the decisions that he made, which I think needed, he couldn't make any other decision, but... Uh, move things in directions that were uh, not quite seen in advance a few years back. So now the whole thing has changed. But what I see in Hitler is that he 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 is elastic in this, and maybe too elastic. I don't, you know. But in that, uh, if when the situation changes and he sees he's not going to go back to the way it was, well then he changes and takes a different view of things, so to speak, somewhat. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's very accurate, and I think it's all a matter of circumstance forcing this war, uh, continuation of this war on him, and he's having to subvert his other goals he had for his country because of the military situation. And and I think that he's saying, hey, you know, I can see that we need to introduce a three-year period of military service because we can then ensure the efficiency in the handling of new technical weapons and and that's what they need right now is men that are wise in that uh, area rather than uh, the ones who have gone to school <clears throat> and learned what he thought uh, and he he's he comments on it and where we're where we're going with this uh with useless things that uh don't help the nation at all don't help the individual at all and and it just shows that his uh his priorities are shifting and they are that is uh a forced circumstance upon him that that happened. He has to, his society has to become more military-oriented. His people have to become that way because he can see now that this thing is a matter of survival. This war is going to last a while. And uh, so I think he's kind of changing uh, to uh, fit that need. Yeah, that's very good. I agree with you, and I think that was important what you said about about the middle, the uh, more highly technical weapons and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they need to learn. So he's looking to a more professional army, right? Uh, absolutely, and that people remain soldiers for a career. You know, a lot of them, and then he's going to reward them <coughs> later Correct. with the, the little farms and so on in this new territory. So uh, right, all right. Now he's talking about what's wrong with the schooling for the new kind of Germany that he's 
we're seeing. So I'm right. sorry, I, okay. I, I stopped you right in the middle of that paragraph. But that's all right. That's all right. We can pick it right up. I'll start with a little bit I've already said here. He said a three-year period will be a great advantage to those who later propose to adopt a learned profession, for it will give them ample time to forget all the muck that was jammed into their heads at school. They will have time to discard everything which will not be of future use to them, and that in itself is most valuable. Everybody, for example, learns two or three foreign languages, which is a complete waste of time. The little one learns is not of the slightest use when one goes abroad. Everybody, I agree, should receive a basic education, but the whole method of instruction in secondary and higher schools is just so much nonsense. Instead of receiving a sound basic education, the student finds his head crammed with a mass of useless learning and in the end is still ill-equipped to face life. Lucky are those who have the happy knack of being able to forget most of what they've been taught. Those who cannot forget are ripe to become professors, a race apart. And that's not intended as a compliment. In 1933, things were still being taught in the higher educational establishments, which had been proven by science to be false as long ago as 1899. The young man who wishes to keep abreast of the times, therefore, had to accept a double load on his unfortunate brain. In a hundred years' time, the number of people wearing spectacles and the size of the human brain will both have increased considerably, but the people will be none the more intelligent. What they will look like with their enormous bulging heads it is better not to try to imagine. They will probably be quite content with their own appearance, but if things continue in the manner predicted by the scientists, I think we can count ourselves lucky that we shall not live to see them. Hey, Ray, <clears throat> I'm going to Ray, stop there. Yeah. yeah, good. I do, too, and I, I, I'm sorry I'm going to preempt you there. I want to say that I checked on Skype and found that my microphone was turned down to the to off, practically off. And my microphone yeah, sound. Do I sound better it's now? It's much better now. Okay. Yes, much. <laughs> it might be too loud now. It might, you know. No, no, I, no, I, no, not at all. Well, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm not that, sure where I had it, but I don't think I had it as high as I have it now. I think I'm going to go back and move it down a little bit. But you know, I don't know how that happened, but Skype is trying to update for me, and I've been holding off on it, and somehow that that, that thing got changed Um and I haven't checked it. I used to check it all the time, but I don't think that much about it anymore, and I haven't checked it for a long time. So that was it. I'm glad I solved that. Whatever. It's working fine now. You're, you're sharp and clear. So, okay, uh, I wanted to stop there because he makes this observation about, uh, you know, in the next hundred years, uh, the number of people wearing spectacles and the size of the human brain will both have increased considerably but the people will be none the more intelligent. And I think the reason he says that is because of his attitude about the education the people are receiving, and that is caused as a result of being taught what to think rather than how to think. And they've been programmed and propagandized and whatever, even in uh, Germany at that time. And, uh, you know, and that uh, that's kind of what struck me there, too, uh, you know, on that uh, level, and he felt like so many things that they were learning in school 
were actually useless to them. And uh, <clears throat> there was a movement. I was going to say, I was going to say that yeah. uh, he's he's. This is one part where I think he's gone. He's gotten carried away with himself when he starts saying that in a hundred years we're going to have these big yeah. heads and. You know, and it's almost 100 years now, <laughs> and we're not any different. <laughs> we might yeah. be stupider, but uh, I can't imagine. He, maybe he was just joking, but that was the only thing I was going to say. Yeah. <clears throat> well, there was a, a movement in the American educational system. Uh, at one time, uh, the American uh, system of learning was set up based on uh, what the ancients taught, uh, I mean, you, you know, students were taught Latin, and, and some people will say, boy, that that sure was of no use, and your basic mathematics and things like this, and then a fellow like John Dewey came along and decided they need social instruction, and we need to revamp everything, and and there's it's two ways of looking at that. We studied a lot of that when I was working on my degrees, and, and uh, what's your viewpoint on this, and, and uh there were in my class. There were uh, uh, the professor wanted two points of view. He wanted someone defending the old school, and he he wanted someone promoting the new. And uh, the students decided I should <laughs> I should represent defending the old way of educating, and and uh, and then the, someone else was going to represent the new uh, way of teaching students in American schools and. I guess I researched it and did pretty well because when I got through the with my side, the professor says, "Boy, that is right down the line from 17 and 1800s American uh, education in the schools, the basics and uh, in that, and uh, and then now this other this youngster in there to me was a youngster then took off on why uh, U.S. schools were so much better off with the curriculum they have now versus." the uh, very basic things that were taught uh, 50 to 100 years ago. But and that's kind of what I thought he was thinking, about, you know, when he was talking about school is so invaluable, you're taught with so much stuff that clutters your brain, you don't need it, and, and uh, uh, that's kind of where my mind went uh, when I was thinking about what he's saying here. And, uh, you know, let's talk about people are uh, going to be wearing they've got a lot more people going to wear glasses big heads because your brain's going to grow and everything i mean uh, he might have been thinking that uh, if this if this whole thing keeps going and keeps going the way it's going which it didn't of course because the war changed a lot but uh, uh so it, you know it, it was just him describing a situation well you know he's he's a self learner and he didn't think that what he learned in school and, and most people realize that you learn outside of school probably more than you learn in That's school. Right. And you're That's learning exactly all the right. time. And if you, they try to give you everything you need before you get out of school, it's just overkill. And, and then, you know, you're kind of, I don't know, maybe you're in worse shape than if you were just allowed to have a more balanced mm-hmm. curriculum. And he's always wanted a lot of uh, sports and outdoor activity. Not just to sure. be like that when he was young, but, you know, knowing that he, he, that makes strong well, people. And that's the kind of Germany that he saw was a strong, healthy, tall people. Exactly. Exactly. And, and a, yeah. a, a trade and a vocational uh, type educational system was much more important and valuable than uh, teaching algebra and French and things like this. And, and uh, you know, I kind of think that's where he was going with that. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. He says, when I was a schoolboy, I did all I could to get out into the open air as much as possible. My school reports bear witness to that. In spite of this, I grew up into a reasonably intelligent young man. I developed along very normal lines, and I learned a lot of things of which my schoolfellows learned nothing. In short, our system of education is the exact opposite of that practiced in the gymnasia of ancient days. The Greek of the Golden Age sought a harmonious education. We succeed only in producing intellectual monsters. Without the introduction of conscription, we should have fallen into complete decadence, and it's thanks to this universal military service that the fatal process has been arrested. This, I regard, is one of the greatest events in history. When I recall my masters at school, I realize that half of them were abnormal, and the greater the distance from which I look back on them, the stronger is my conviction that I'm quite right. The primary task of education is to train the brain of the young. It is quite impossible to recognize the potential aspirations of a child of 10. In old days, teachers strove always to seek out each pupil's weak point, and by exposing and dwelling on it, they successfully killed the child's self-confidence. Had they, on the contrary, striven to find the direction in which each pupil's talents lay, and then concentrated on the development of those talents, they would have furthered education in its true sense. Instead, they sought mass production by means of endless generalizations. A child who could not solve a mathematical equation, they said, would do no good in life. It's a wonder that they did not prophesy that he would come to a bad and shameful end. What I see in that right there, Carolyn, is, is uh, in my mind, uh, it's like I've always thought of this, and a uh, very simple, basic thing. If, if you're hiking in an unfamiliar country and you backpacked and all of a sudden you're lost, you have no idea where you are. Uh, you're facing danger, uh, and you come up on two, two men, and one of them's an IQ of 165 as a nuclear physicist, and the other one, might be toothless, chewing a wad of tobacco, uh, but he knows how to live off the land. Which one of those guys are you going to pick to help get you out of that mess? It's going to be the guy that's illiterate uh, and whatever, but he knows practicality. And, and I think that's exactly what Hitler was talking about here, uh, someone who l- learns practicality, living off the land, so to speak, versus book smarts. And uh, to me, that's what the Fuhrer was stressing. Yeah. Well, I thought this was very excellent, and uh, I underlined it. And I think yeah. uh, when it was true that what they used, what they did in the schools, then is that they really did say that you could not continue in school if you didn't pass everything. If you weren't, you know, if mm-hmm. you couldn't, yeah. um, couldn't uh, master everything, including mathematics, which a lot of people had trouble with, and things like that. And Hitler is saying that that's the wrong thing to do, and you you stifle, right. you kill the young person's self-esteem and feelings about himself. And that you and it also prevented that student from getting into any, any higher or any from moving forward in life. You know, he was stuck at a certain level. He was stuck in uh, as a uh, 
as a worker worker type person, and he couldn't get into school. He couldn't go further in school. Right. No matter how talented he he might be in certain areas. And you couldn't like him. But he experienced that he couldn't go get into art school or or architectural school because he didn't have these uh, other schooling behind him, even though he had the talent and the ability to do so. And that's the way the system worked then. And he and exactly. a lot of people have talked about this, and he said that was a, a really a bad system. And what what he's initiated in, and he and others initiated in into the uh, Hitler Youth and National Socialist Education and so on, was that you look for, as he says here, you look for what the child, what the student is good at. And if they're not good at certain things, well, okay, Correct. they don't go on to a higher level of. But they, but they do go into schools that teach them, you know, help them with what they are good at and what they like. Um, and you keep everybody moving forward that way. And you keep everybody productive and feeling good about being a part of, of the German nation, not feeling like they're a second. You know, it used to be before Hitler's time. And Hitler's told some of these stories that it was so snob- The nobility and the upper classes were so snobbish that they... Well, we've talked about this too, Ray, that they actually disliked all these German lower-class people and didn't want to even have anything to do with them, you know. But they liked right. uh, people of their own class from other nations and all around Europe, and they hobnobbed mm-hmm. those people. But their own German people, they thought were not worthy to be in their company, uh, you know, to even p- participate in national events that were taking place uh they they weren't they were so hitler thought this was so terrible and that's one of the best things about him among well, many good things about him that's that's exactly right that's so true and uh, not only that but you know he saw the waste of of uh young students who had been typed and classified <laughs> as well you can't work this mathematical problem so you know, you're not really going to be of much use to society. Not only was that so damaging and wasteful to the young student, it was depriving the nation of possibly some of its best leadership. Because these these uh, kids oh, who sure. may not have excelled in in one area might have gone on gone on to be, uh, let's say, a really wonderful gauleiter uh, or whatever. But they were turned away at the very beginning of what when they were trying to learn. Uh, well, it wasn't that, that they couldn't system. participate, Ray, but, but they couldn't go on into a higher level of schooling. And that was everything. Yeah. If you didn't if you didn't complete the whole, all the schooling, you were just, you know, you were typed then, and, and yeah. uh, you you didn't seem to be, uh, to ha- be able to uh, move into higher paying positions and so on. So, but you had to know, you had to, and these kids back in those days, they really sweated this out, you know. It was so important. That's and right. We've read about this in more modern times. We've read about it in in Asian schools. Some of the, I don't know how, I can't think of it right now, but uh, where they, the standards are so high and they have to work like crazy, you know, while they're in, at a certain age to pass all this and learn all this stuff uh, in order to keep going or they, they'll be stuck forever. So, um, and then he says, uh, did you read this part? Uh, this questions would have defeated my own mother, or did you stop before that? No, we're, we're not to that yet. Okay, okay. Very close. All right. All right. Okay. Okay. He says, uh, have things changed much today, I wonder? I'm not sure. 
and many of the things I see around me incline me to the opinion that they have not. I was shown a questionnaire drawn up by the Ministry of the Interior, which it was proposed to put to people whom it was deemed desirable to sterilize. At least three-quarters of the questions asked would have defeated my own good mother. One, I recall, was, why does a ship made of steel float in the water? If this system had been introduced before my birth, I'm pretty sure I should never have been born at all. Let us, for God's sake, throw open the windows and let the fresh air blow away nonsense of this nature. Put the young men into the army, whence they will return refreshed and cleansed of eight years of scholastic slime. In the olden days, we were an energetic people, but gradually we developed into a people of poets and thinkers. Poets do not matter, for no one takes them seriously, but the world is greatly overburdened with thinkers. I keep a bust of Schornhorst on my table. It is he who started our people back on the road to sanity. The world at large welcomed this Germany of poets and thinkers because it knew how they sapped our virility. One of the worst pupils of whom I have ever heard was little Fraulein Wagner, who was the bete noir of her teachers and who was finally expelled from school. While nursing at the front, she was seized with the desire to become a doctor. She returned to school, passed all her examinations easily, and is now studying at the Higher School of Medicine. This is a fine example of perseverance supported by enthusiasm. It is a mistake to say that youth is stupid. Youth follows its instinct, and any little urchin has a very much shrewder knowledge of his teacher than the latter has of him. My dog understands perfectly everything I say to him. I'm the one who does not understand. Still, we have made progress in the field of education in spite of having a pedant at the head of the educational department. With another in control, progress would have been more rapid. A man worthy of the name does not solemnly relearn the alphabet each year. With a woman, it's different. She's following the laws of nature and is fulfilling her natural function when, having had a child, she starts to have another. But there is no professor who, to my knowledge, has shown creative genius. Yes, Felix Don, but then he was no real professor. A man who spends 30 years teaching the rudiments of the French language comes in, uh, comes in the end to believe that his instruction is the foundation of all knowledge. Just think how in the old days a bit of paper could alter the course of one's whole life. Look at my school reports. I got bad marks in German. My disgusting teacher had succeeded in giving me an intense dislike for my mother tongue. He asserted that I would never be capable of writing a decent letter. If this blundering little twerp had given me a grade five, I should have been precluded from becoming a technician. Now, thank God, we have the Hitler Youth, where the child is judged on all his qualities and not solely on his scholastic attainments. Character is taken into consideration. The talent of leadership is encouraged, and every child has the legal right to show what he can do. Yeah, that's like the Hitler Creed I wrote down. That's mm-hmm. that's something that he is Good. he says, and he really... He really believes it, and it's a strong, strong uh, 
decision in him that this is the way things should be done and, and this is the way the Hitler Youth is going. And it's excellent, I think, just excellent. Oh, I do too. Yeah. That last part summed up the the first uh, lengthy section of this part, uh, exactly what he was talking about. Right. I get ahead of myself and thinking of things that are coming up ahead. But, but you know, here I want to bring up where I was saying I think sometimes he goes he goes too far, and he's doing it again in this uh, paragraph before the last one with uh, with women and differences between women and men. And you know, yeah. he always compares them to the detriment of women. In some cases, I can certainly understand it, but to say, I have to pick on him here, to say that um, a woman having one one child and then having another child is not the same as uh, learning the alphabet over and over again. <laughs> you know, that's what, he's, that's what he's trying to compare, that women can do the same thing over and over again, uh, and when, when men would just not ever do the same thing over and over again, uh, which is not really the case. And certainly having more children is not doing the same thing over and over again. It's like uh, teaching children every year the rudiments, the ABCs and so on. That's an interesting perspective, you know, and, and that's good. I, I hadn't even thought of it that way, uh, Carolyn. When I read that, to me... Uh, if I may offer this, how it struck me was when he says a man worthy of the name does not solemnly relearn the alphabet every year. He meant to say that, hey, once the man has studied that, he's got it down, he doesn't forget it. And uh, and then when the woman comes along uh, and has her child, it's the same thing. She She has that first baby, then she steps right in, and she doesn't have to learn all over again uh, about what childbirth is about and everything because she's much better at it. She she uh, learns it, knows what it is the second time around, uh, better than the first time, and that's how. Well, it's but he made. says here with a woman it is different. So he's saying that the woman is different, not the same. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Well, she um, as he also says she's following the laws of nature. And, well, uh, right. When he's talking right. about. Yeah, when he's talking about the man, he's talking about the educational system and learning that alphabet every year. But at any rate, it was an interesting perspective and a good point. Well, he's comparing them. Um, you know, yeah. it's, the thing about the dog is so true that yeah. uh, that dogs understand what we what we're saying, what we want, but we don't understand what they do. He said, "I'm but the one that sometimes we do." Yeah, so he was yeah. aware of that. I like this this story i like when he said that this uh this girl who and you know a bete noir is uh is someone who everybody dislikes nobody likes mm-hmm. this fraulein wagner and and uh they even expelled her from school they, they just thought something they didn't like about her anyway right. she went right. to the front and nurse and then she was seized by a great desire you know to become a doctor and she goes back to school passes everything uh, and uh, is is a doctor now. And so he says, a fine example of perseverance supported by enthusiasm. That's so right on. Th- that's exa- yeah. exactly what is the, are the most important qualities probably for getting somewhere and success. And he's right. got it. He's picked the words just exactly right. In in most cases, he's he's so exact with the truth. He's so he he understands things so. So perfectly well. And I just wanted to mention that uh, Scharnhorst was a general. He died around 1850-something. 
but he was one of the great uh, generals. He was in the service of the Prussians, in, of the Prussians, and um, he was noted for his military theories. Of course, he's, he's very famous in Germany. When Hitler kind of puts down, he's not moved by the idea that Germany is the land of poets and thinkers, and that's what's been said. Uh, I thought this was really interesting because that's what's been said all the time, and in fact, they say right. that. How how could the land of poets and thinkers be taken in by someone like Hitler and his henchmen, you know, and this just doesn't fit. And that's what the Jews like to keep promoting that idea sure. all the time, too, right. that this is what Germany is. And Hitler is actually saying, I don't want to be just the land of poets and thinkers. We want to be a land of uh, doers and conquerors and right. so on, strong people and this is, I think this is quite an interesting look at, at what he's thinking about. Because this has always been, you know, like, oh, Germany should be proud of its poets and thinkers. But he didn't want to just be that. That's right. So, yeah. All right, shall we move on to 30th of August, 1942, in the evening? Yep, and Rugen. I have a timeline here. Oh, good. It's um, okay. the Battle of Alam Halfa in Egypt. A few miles south of El Alamein, Alamein. Is that pronounced El Alamein? Alamein. El Alamein. Yes. That's how I hear it. Begins. Uh, this uh, this battle begins. It will be Rommel's last attempt attempt to break through the British lines. The RAF air superiority plays a large role. It says. And also on the 30th, Luxembourg is formally annexed to the German Reich. Just like uh, Austria was, I guess, that way, became part of the German Reich. So it must not have been called Luxembourg anymore, at the moment anyway, as far as I know. But people would have still been calling it that. Yeah. Okay. Brigands of yesterday and today. The Russians and prostitution. Unseasonable weather. After the Thirty Years' War... Brigandage flourished for many decades, and the post had to be escorted by a squadron of cavalry. It is here in Russia that communism shows its true face. We must undertake a campaign of cleaning up square meter by square meter, and this will compel us to have recourse to summary justice. The struggle with the territories will be savage warfare in the real sense. In Estonia and Latvia... These bands have all but ceased to be active, but until Jewry, which is the bandit's intelligence service, is exterminated, we shall not have accomplished our task. It's interesting to note the way in which this little Catholic priest, who calls himself, is that Tiso or Tiso, Carolyn, T-I-S-O? Tiso? Well, I think it's Tiso. Yeah, that's the way I, I would call it. Mm-hmm. A, a priest who calls himself Tiso sends the Jews into our hands. Fundamentally, there is a certain moral to be drawn from the Russian attitude towards brothels. It is beneath one's dignity to legislate for such places. In our own country, however, prostitution has to a certain extent been sanctified by the fact that it was the archbishop, bishops and the bishops who introduced the levying of the harlot's tithe. The princely bishop of Mainz drew a large portion of his revenues from this source. 
that the Bolsheviks admit the legality of a woman's having children by different men is due, I think, to their desire to bring about a fusion of their various races. It is curious, but it is nonetheless a fact that our medical examination show that 80 to 90 percent of their unmarried girls up to the age of 25 are virgins and have a clean bill of health. The continuation, week after week, of fine weather. But, well, before we go on to the weather, let let me just yeah. comment on this. We're kind of breaking Good. this up okay. a lot, but uh, you know, it's this thing about the uh, the Bolsheviks and the prostitution, and then he's talking about he kind of jumps. Um, yes, the from, uh, Yeah, he well he jumps from uh, from saying that Bolshevism. Uh, women can have children by different men, and we know that was very loose uh, in uh, under communism. I, women in yeah. the, these kind of traditional roles were not played up in the same way. And he said they desired to bring about a fusion of the of their various races, meaning all those various races in Russia. But then, but then he goes into something altogether different. And is he talking about the same people? I don't think so. He says, our medical examinations show that 80 to 90% of the unmarried girls uh, up to 25 are virgins and have a clean bill of health. Well, what he's saying here, he's going back to what he said, maybe it was only a few days ago or a day or two ago, but it was a few weeks ago for us, yeah. where remember when he was talking about the women from Ukraine, I thought it was, or he, he might have said the Slavic women, uh, girls, the girls um, that uh, that came. I don't know where they came, but I guess they came over their side or whatever, and uh, they were occupying that area. So they were part right. of what was, was going on. Was in military camps. <laughs> yeah, and and he said, "Gee, they were uh, virgins." And then he was saying how the girls in Bavaria don't remain virgins, but these girls were were vir- young women were virgins. So I don't think he's he's kind of jumping from one thing to another here, and he's just going back, or he's thinking he's remembered that fact, and so he's used it here, even though it doesn't exactly fit with what he was saying, if you ask me. And it might be the fault well, of uh, the Heim, the note taker, for all we know. That's, that's- that's possible, but I, you know, I just took took a look at it from my own perspective as a general view of prostitution and the judgmental attitudes about it. And you know, and he said the Bolshevik view or the Russian attitude toward brothels—it's beneath one's dignity to legislate for such places, making them legal or whatever. But then he turns and says, "Hey, it was our own archbishops and bishops." who decided, boy, they're going to get a cut of this pie instead of condemning prostitution yeah. and trying to help the young ladies to another way of life. It was, hey, give me part of that money that you're making. And, uh, you know, so uh, the Bolsheviks, uh, that the Bolsheviks admit the legality of a woman's having children by different men is due, I think, to their desire to bring about a fusion of the various races. Well, you're right, it does jump there, but yeah. it's the whole... The whole thing about prostitution, you know, about how uh, uh, he's really condemning the archbishops and bishops decided, hey, let's put a tax on their earnings. Yeah, that so was that interesting. Could... That was yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. I left that out. But, you know, I think maybe something might have been left out here because it it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense yeah. the way he's it's, putting it. It's very this, possible, so. yeah. Yeah. Okay, just to okay. Sh- uh, conclude this particular section. 
The continuation week after week of fine weather is most unusual for this district. Last year at this time, our advance in the south was painfully slow because every two or three days we had a thunderstorm. After the terrible winter of 1929, we had a series of fine harvests, and I hope we shall now have the same again. That we have succeeded in converting the Russian railway network to our own use is one of the most astonishing feats of all time. And that wraps up that little short section. Yeah, well, I guess they've gotten yeah, that the railway. Russian railway converted already. Yeah, well, and, and that's he pretty said, doggone that's good. That, what that meant, yeah, what that meant was a different gauge of tracks. Right, um, right. That, the locomotives in in uh, Europe yeah. uh, did not use as wide a track as the ones in the Soviet Union, uh, and so all the tracks had to be widened, and and that takes some doing. And uh, that's but, the uh, total anyway. organization that that did that. That total uh, organization was invaluable, and everybody knew it. And it was too bad right. that Toad himself got killed in a crash. So many times these these indispensable people get killed. It's just uh-huh. Okay, for the timeline for the 31st is okay. the start of a 1942 Luxembourgish general strike against conscription. So the Luxembourgers became part of the Reich, but then they didn't want they didn't want to have conscription. What did they think? I don't know if they were forced to become part of the Reich. Uh, they are German people there, but they actually mixed their. Um, in Luxembourg, they speak French, German, and Luxembourgish. The, the, um, that's some kind of language, little language of their own, but it's not a real language because it's not even uh, capitalized. It's just kind of a, a little dialect thing they have. So there are some dis- uh, differences, but they put up a big, uh, a big fuss over that, and, and uh, well, I guess it was the police or the, uh, the police had to come in, and uh, they decided. To get real tough with them because they couldn't have, they couldn't go along with people saying they weren't going to go and serve in the in the war. So they really couldn't do that either. So they they couldn't say, well, all right, we'll let you guys off. So they had to come down real hard and they uh, had to execute some people and so on. I don't really know how it all turned out, but it's kind of a big big deal in history to these people, unfortunately. Right. Okay, 31st of August, 1942, evening. Lloyd George and the Treaty of Versailles. The error of Almeria. Britain, Germany, and the Duke of Windsor. Jews spur on the deadly work of the warmongers. Baldwin and Chamberlain. Churchill gathers gathers a few crumbs. It is a mistake to think that all Britons are arrogant. It is perfectly true that they have a handful of degenerates at their head, and I must admit that our leaders of 1917 and 18 shone in comparison. I asked Lloyd George why it was that he had failed to gain his point when negotiations for the peace treaty were in progress. He was advocating a magnanimous peace treaty. He explained that Wilson opposed him from the beginning and that the French never ceased from their witch hunt. It was not his fault, and he had done all that was in his power to do. When the German government declared that it would never sign such a treaty, the second draft was drawn up, whereby the Allies would renounce the corridor, we should keep the Cameroons, 
and the German Navy would be allowed to retain four battleships and eight other major warships. The claim for reparations was also reduced to approximately 25 milliards. Lloyd George reminded me that at that time the British were hated by the French, and in Paris the old cry of Perfidi Albion once more gained currency. He also told me that he was surprised and completely taken aback when, at the last minute, the German delegation declared its readiness to sign. As they went out, Clemenceau hissed in his ear, Voila! When a nation behaves too disgracefully, it loses all claim to respect. Neither Britain nor France would have been in a position to continue the war in 1919. But in the summer of 1919, the German people had already decided to continue the struggle. A wave of sympathy for Germany swept over Britain as a result of the bombardment of Almeria, and the Eden-Vansetart gang worked for years before they could suppress it. Recently, they have announced the internment of 11,000 fascist, uh, fascist supporters of Mosley. The real reason for the destruction of the Duke of Windsor was, I'm sure, his speech at the old veterans rally in Berlin, at which he declared that it would be the task of his life to effect a reconciliation between Britain and Germany. That rally in Berlin bore the stamp of sincere and mutual esteem, and the subsequent treatment of the Duke of Windsor was an evil omen. To topple over so fine a pillar of strength was both wicked and foolish. The campaign of antagonism against Germany was organized by Churchill on the order of orders of his Jewish paymasters and with the collaboration of Eden, Vansittart, and company. The Jews had already succeeded step by step in gaining complete control of the press. To counteract Rothermere, the Jews cut off his complete revenue from advertising, and it was Rothermere himself who told me the story of how he was compelled to toe the line. Any and every nation which fails to exterminate the Jews in its midst will sooner or later finish by being itself devoured by them. In retrospect, it is quite impossible to understand how all this happened. Old Baldwin started the rot. He himself had great interest in the arms industry, and rearmament certainly put, in, put many hundreds of millions into his pocket. Another with the same interest was Chamberlain. Churchill the rattled old whore of journalism, picked up a few crumbs. Churchill is an unprincipled swine. A perusal of his memoirs proves it. In them, he strips himself naked before the public. God help a nation that accepts the leadership of a thing like that. Wow. wow. Good stuff there, Carolyn. <laughs> well, really, and you know, he really talks about the Jews there makes it very clear yeah, what he has against them and why, and I think that's really valuable. I do, too. Yeah. And I, the thing that struck me was I wasn't aware that Lloyd George had been as magnanimous or tried to be as magnanimous as he could at the Versailles conference, and uh, he said uh, everything he tried to do, Wilson cut him off. Wilson opposed him at every turn, and then he said, right. of course, the French never cease their witch hunt. Uh, because they were uh, hateful and despiteful of the British at that point. And so, you know, uh, I, I was pleased to learn that uh, Lloyd George, because from what I'd studied of British history, and we had a lot of that in school uh, in my degree work, but uh, I came away with a very, rather favorable viewpoint of him uh, simply mm -hmm. because he seemed to conduct himself like a gentleman. And now I find out that, indeed, he tried to, 
be magnanimous with the beaten enemy at Versailles and was just run over by Wilson, and yet it's Wilson in our textbook who is presented as the very magnanimous, gentlemanly, wanted uh, to be kind over there, yeah. took his 14 points and was snubbed, things like this. Mm-hmm. So it, no. was, it was a very nice uh, thing to learn. They never snubbed the Americans. You know, yeah. uh, from a certain point on, the Americans were always right. had a very strong hand in all these things. But I like that he says right at the beginning that that the Brit what the the problem with the Britons is they have a handful of degenerates at their head. Now, the Britons are okay, but the handful of degenerates at their head that's really the true story yeah. about that that country. That's right. Um, and he that's points right. out some of them, some of the more recent ones. And but you know I this I think I had heard this story before, but hearing it you know seeing it again, it's really uh, horrible. That according to Lloyd George, that when the Germans, yeah. when the German delegation said they will never sign such a treaty, they started working on something that they would sign. That's they, right. they, they knew that it was too too strict, and then too for harsh. some That's... reason, too harsh, yeah. And then for some reason, right before they were going to present it, this German delegation turned around and, and signed it. Either they caved in or whatever happened to them. And then uh, right. Clemenceau, who was, of course, the French prime minister who hated the Germans so much, was just so happy about that. That was. Uh, what do you think about that? I think, uh, boy, that was really something to learn too. And uh, like he says, uh, Lord George says he was completely shocked and taken aback when, at the last minute, the German delegation declared his readiness to sign because. Uh, <laughs> His insinuation there, and I think he's exactly correct, if the Germans had said to hell with this, we're not going to sign this revision either. You take it back and bring us something that we'll sign. They would have done it. And this well, they were doing it. Fuel. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, yeah, the, the uh, Allies would have had to revise some of those maybe harsh they reparations wouldn't have signed or something. Any of it, maybe if they wouldn't have signed until it was a whole lot better, they would have gotten away yes. with that too. But see, Hitler yes, would have stood up to all this. Hitler always I agree, stood up. He that, learned from this. Never to, yes. uh, you know, yeah. Well, right, and I think so. from that from that came Hitler's attitude of being stabbed in the back and sold out, that the German leaders uh, dumped on the German nation by agreeing to all that crap at Versailles and signing that treaty when they didn't have to. In other words, they did. They could have held out for more. And when that became learned by people like him, it was just fuel to the fire to change well, things. There was something, I can't think of it now, there was something that made them feel that they had to come to an agreement because they were maybe they were starving or they were doing without uh something was well, that's, going that's, on. That, yeah. That is that, a uh, part of it. That's true. Yeah. Have to go back look at that again. Well let's continue with this. Um he brings up the Eden Vansittart gang, and he mentions Vansittart a couple of times in this as being yes. one of those degenerate leaders uh, of, of the elite that they have there. And then I was surprised that the British announced the internment of 11,000 fascist followers of Mosley. When did that happen, Ray? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, that one kind of surprised me, too. I knew that they had arrested people that... Uh, dared to kind of speak out once the war had started, but I was unaware of any 11,000 followers of Mosley being arrested. Uh, that's the first I'd heard of it. Okay. So. And then he says, uh, then he's talking about the Duke of 
the Duke of Windsor um, saying how badly they treated him. But you know what I think about the Duke of Windsor? He he was he was the uh, heir to the throne, member of the yes. royal family. He knew what his responsibilities were, and it seems to me he must not have cared that much about being king. He should have not married that woman and uh, and done what he needed to do for his country. And particularly if he wanted to lead it in a different direction. He was really serious about that. But I guess well, he was the that... kind of person. Well, let me just finish this real quick. I yeah, guess he was the yeah. kind of person who put, that, put a relationship ahead of everything, and he was so they had such a fantastic love affair or something that he couldn't live without her, he says. So uh, he gave that all up, and then his stupid, incompetent younger brother got to take the throne, and he didn't do anything good. Yeah. So I'm kind of disappointed in that Duke of Windsor. I don't. I think he had a weak well, streak in him. What do you he, say? He was uh, King Edward VIII, right? And uh, he uh, he was the successor to the throne. But you know, uh, I think that he wanted peace with Germany. He was. He looked upon Germany favorably. Well, he did. Sure. The whole, the infrastructure yeah. all around him was harassing him because of that. And, yeah, he had this uh, Simpson lady, a married gal from the United States that he was hot for and all this stuff, but I really don't think he sacrificed his rule for her. I think that he was driven out by the likes of uh, the war gang, Vansittar, Churchill, Eden, and the rest of them made life for him just miserable and said, hey, go ahead and take your gal and run. Uh, well, you where do you get that idea? Yeah, just uh, over the years, over, over, you know, over the years, I have read uh, things like that about uh, that defend him uh, and say that uh, he had this affair with this woman, and what we are we have been taught about him giving up his throne uh, to run off and marry the woman that he loved has been an, a very overplayed thing. Well, he did marry uh, her, and they did stay together, and they seemed to be quite devoted yeah. to one another. So they really That's did. Correct. It wasn't just the gal that he was hot for. It was uh, right. they really did have a strong relationship. That's right. Um, they and, did. and I don't think that uh, that these people could have kept him from being a big influence as king, if that's what he wanted to do. So I just think he was a little bit of a different kind of person. I don't. I haven't read about him. Just to po- you know, popular stuff. Yeah. So uh, I don't. I would like to now find out, but boy, I've got a, such a list of things I want to find out more about that. I don't know how I'll do that. But if anybody has anything about that, they can always write a comment into the. Sure, program. I'd like to. Oh. I'd like to hear from the. I'd like to hear from any of our audience about that particular thing and see what they feel about it. Right. So. Well, I believe right. our time is up. Yeah, well, it is up, but you know, I have to edit this show, Ray, so we can spend a little bit more time here at the end. Oh, okay. And, and um, you know, this this business about Churchill um, is good too. He he makes it and he makes it very clear what he thinks of Churchill, and also Rothermere, the uh, big big uh, news newspaper owner, uh-huh. newspaper man, was totally uh, was totally at the mercy of the Jews. Because they yes. were able to cut off the avenue advertising for his paper. What was the same way they put uh, Henry Ford at their mercy? That's and right. these these stories need to be told to more more people need to understand these things. And when he mentioned Baldwin, and that Stanley Baldwin, 
who was prime minister from 1935 to 1937. So he was one of these no good things, and also Neville Chamberlain. He doesn't think well of either one of those. They were uh, they started it. He said Baldwin started the rock, and he had great interest in the arms industry. That's all yeah. in rearmament. Made a ton of money off of it. Right, and then he says Chamberlain was the same. I never thought of Chamberlain that way, but uh, no, yes, I didn't Chamberlain either. was uh, <clears throat> was interested in money too. Well, that's what he says anyway. Okay, well, well, that's all I have, Ray. Are you ready to sign off? Well, okay, just one more sentence here, back on what we were talking about, the Duke of Windsor. Uh, he, uh, Hitler does say the Duke of Windsor had given that speech in, in uh, Berlin, uh, and he said it was his life's ambition to effect a reconciliation between Britain and Germany, talking about the rift in World War One. And uh, he said the what he t- did there was so positive. And then he says the subsequent treatment of the Duke of Windsor was an evil omen. So he was treated very badly, okay, by the British establishment. It was because of his reaching out to Germany. And uh, and that fits in with what the articles over the years that I have read about uh, him being forced out because he wanted peace with Germany. So anyway, I'd like to hear from our Well, maybe uh, they were going that. to uh to uh call him a traitor or something and uh, end up uh doing like yeah. uh, the, the the king could just go ahead and abdicate uh you yeah. know under political pressure. So Well, maybe in order to prevent a a scandal, a big scandal like that. Yeah. I don't know. Right. Certainly a possibility, isn't it? Yeah. Well, okay, uh We have uh, some more very interesting things for next week. So, ladies and gentlemen, do please come back again, and we'll say good night now. Good night, Ray. Good night, Carolyn. We'll see you folks on April the 2nd. 